So thank you so much for your great singing this morning. It's a pleasure to be able to speak from God's Word as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Kathy just read Philippians 12 through 18. Those first two verses, 12 and 13, were covered last week by John Tonello. And those were probably kind of somewhat difficult verses to unpack. And I think that um, this, these verses, while uh, a different um, vein, a different topic, so to speak, I think that there will still be much for us to unpack in today's uh, study from God's Word. So let me just real quickly recap our study of the book of Philippians so far. Paul began the letter by writing a greeting to the Philippians in which he expressed his thanksgiving for them to God and prayed for their continued growth in the Lord. He then reassured them that God was already using his imprisonment for the expansion of the gospel and that he, God, would continue to do so. Finally, he commanded them to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel by humbly serving one another. And of course, Jesus is the supreme example of this. And continuing to work out their own salvation, knowing that God provides the ability to obey. So after appealing for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul now gives us a specific command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Since this is a key command presented here, we must take, I believe, sufficient time to understand why the apostle would specifically target grumbling and disputing. His reason for this commandment concerns our individual and our corporate testimony before the world, which we'll see later here in verses 15 and 16. So, what then is the big deal about grumbling and disputing? Especially since we might say that these two actions don't sound incredibly serious. We first need to consider exactly what Paul means by these words. Grumbling, which is also often translated as murmuring, is the act of unhappily complaining of something underneath your, your breath. And it reveals a hidden reluctance, a discontentment. Peter commands us to show hospitality without grumbling, since grumbling is not the earnest love that should mark a Christian. In 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9, these verses read, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Disputing might also mean be translated as complaining or arguing. With this, Paul is not suggesting that questioning is always a sin. However, discontented nitpicking or even conscientious quarreling is sinful. Both thus are rooted 
in a heart of discontentment. So yet still, why does Paul warn us about these two things specifically? In many ways, this section of verses closes out the thought that verse 27 of chapter 1 began. That verse reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He is desiring to bring the idea of being citizens worthy of the gospel to a close, even though he will return to it again in chapter 3. And ultimately, grumbling and disputing run counter to the unified vision that Paul has been urging. He is essentially saying that our testimony as children of God requires that we be marked not by grumbling and disputing, but by joy even in trials. Our testimony of Christ should be uppermost in our thinking so as to affect all our attitudes and behavior. If I asked you what is the chief end of man, we would likely agree that it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if I went a step further and asked, what does it mean to glorify God? We would most likely say, to make Him look good as He truly is. To glorify God means that when people look at our lives as Christians, they should extol and exalt our God, whom they see shining through us. So as children of God, our testimony, what our lives communicate about our Savior, should be uppermost in our thinking, so that our attitudes, our behavior, and our words bring glory to God. Paul in these verses refers to Christians as children of God. A specific Old Testament passage is behind Paul's words. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 25, in the Song of Moses, in referring to the grumbling and unbelief of the children of Israel in the wilderness, Moses says, They have dealt corruptly with him, but they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul turns that around and he says that we are God's children living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And thus, we must be careful not to grumble and dispute as Israel did in the wilderness because as God's people, we are supposed to shine forth in this dark world as lights. Think about for those of you who have children. Children reflect on their parents. Children will take on the behaviors, attitudes, and words of their parents. That's the point we have to keep in mind as children of the Heavenly Father. He is perfect in all His ways. 
But sometimes his ways lead us into the wilderness where there are hardships. When you read Exodus, you see how God delivered Israel from Egypt in a powerful way. He sent the plagues. Then he led Israel to the edge of the Red Sea and brought Pharaoh's army on their heels. He miraculously parted the sea so that Israel could march through on dry ground and then brought the sea back on top of the Egyptian army. Then, after this mighty demonstration of God's power and of his care for chosen people, we read next that they came to a place, three days' journey into the wilderness, where there was no water. This is in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Coming right on the heels of their mighty victory, and just after the song of Moses celebrating their... Uh, that victory, when you read about their lack of water, you might think, so what? Not a big deal. God, who just parted the sea, can provide water. But instead, we read, the people grumbled against Moses. That's in Exodus 15:24. Then we read how they grumbled because there was no food. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, so the Lord provided manna. Then they grumbled because there was no meat. So the Lord provided quails in Exodus chapter 16, verses 8 through 13. Then they ran out of water again and grumbled again. And the Lord provided water in Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. But I want you to think about one thing. In their grumbling, against Moses and disputing with him, they were really grumbling and disputing against the Lord. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, it says, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It was a poor testimony to the nations around them that the God who had provided a mighty deliverance for Israel would not also provide for their basic needs. It reflected badly on his love, his care, and his power to provide. The pagan nations around them who were looking for a, a reason, a pretext, to justify their rebellion against the living God, would scoff at God when they heard the grumbling and complaining of his people. So that's ultimately Paul's point in this text this morning. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that refuses to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a world marked by grumbling and complaining. In the original temptation in Genesis, Satan got Eve to doubt the goodness of God. And ever since, he seeks to do the same. People won't trust in a God whose goodness is in question. So here are God's people in Philippi, delivered from bondage to sin by God's mighty salvation through the death 
and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They have seen his power. Then they get into a wilderness situation, a trial where they run out of some basic resource and don't have a clue where it's going to come from. What do they do? Do they or we grumble and dispute with God? Do we say things like, how could you do this to me when I faithfully followed you? Or, filled with joy in the Lord, do they or we shine forth as lights in the darkness? The testimony of Christ is at stake, especially when we're going through a difficult trial. Paul says that three things should mark children of God, especially in trials. We should be, and here are the three things in these verses, blameless, innocent, and without blemish. Blameless has the nuance of moral integrity as seen by others. It points to our outwardly observable behavior, including our attitudes. Nothing in our lives should give an occasion for scandal. A great example of a blameless man is Daniel, who lived in Babylon and served in that pagan government. When his enemies wanted to find some charge against him to bring him down because they were jealous of his position, they finally concluded, and the verse from uh, Daniel 6.5 says, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel lived with integrity. Also, we are to be innocent. This, This word focuses on inward moral integrity, which is the proper root of outwardly blameless behavior. It focuses on what we are in our thought life before God. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, those verses say that all sin starts in our thoughts or mind. Thus, we have to judge our sinful thoughts and take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it alludes to that. So that we will be not only blameless, but innocent. And then, then number three, we must also be without blemish. It's an interesting Greek word, amoma, A-M-O-M-A. In Greek, the letter A negates something. So the word means the opposite of moma, M-O-M-A, and momus, M-O-M-U-S, was a continually complaining Greek god who did nothing himself and found fault with everybody and everything. So those who gripe and find fault came to be called MoMA. But Paul says that the children of God are not to be fault finders and gripers. We are to be without the blemish of complaining because we want this crooked 
and perverse generation to know that our Heavenly Father is a good, loving, and caring God. Our testimony of Christ should be uppermost in our minds so that we glorify Him by how we live. Our testimony of Christ is tarnished by grumbling and disputing. So in the context of these verses, Paul is speaking about grumbling and disputing against one another. But all grumbling and disputing is really against God, who is sovereign over all our circumstances. Grumbling is used repeatedly of Israel in the wilderness, both in their complaining about Moses as well as about their circumstances. Ultimately, though, Moses wasn't a perfect leader. No human leader is. But God had appointed him. So God said that their grumbling was against him. When we grumble, we're really wrongly questioning God. Disputing can either mean inward questioning or outward dissension. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul's command not to dispute does not stifle honest discussion of differences on matters of doctrine or practice, but it does confront our attitude in how we raise questions or disagreements. To dispute means to challenge in a selfish rather than a submissive spirit. It means to assert our authority in an attempt to resist God so that we don't have to submit to his word. Satan was disputing when he said to Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. As Matthew Henry put it, God's commands were given to be obeyed, not to be disputed. If we don't complain, but do our work cheerfully as unto the Lord, in Paul's word, we shine as lights in the world. Or as Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we've seen that our testimony should be uppermost in our thinking so that it affects all our attitudes and behavior to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. Grumbling and disputing tarnish that testimony. Our testimony of Christ shines forth when we are filled with joy, even in the midst of trials. Lights, in this passage, means luminaries, things that shine. When do stars shine the brightest? When the night is the darkest. They shine, but not as brightly when the moon is full. The stars shine during the day, but we can't see them. Because the light of the sun blocks them out. But on a dark night, they shine the bright, brightest. 
We can have the most effective witness for Jesus Christ when we're in the darkest place. It may be a place of personal trial where we radiate with God's joy in spite of our situation. If we do all things without grumbling or disputing, but rather are blameless, innocent, and without blemish, filled with joy in the Lord, we will shine. Many people will never read the Bible, but they do read us. In verse 16, holding fast to the word of life is elaborating upon the previous idea, which implies that this phrase is meant to be evangelistic as well. The Greek word here can mean both hold onto and hold forth or present. Thus, Paul is probably not commanding us to clutch the gospel to us as tightly as possible so that no one can take it from us. Rather, he is urging us to have the gospel in our arms at all times, ready to share it with any who might listen. Since the gospel is truly the word of eternal life, we should be prepared constantly to share it with this crooked and, generation, and twisted generation around us. Within the second half of verse 16, Paul presents his reasoning for the Philippians' obedience to the previous phrases. He says, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, at first, at a glance, it seems like this is a very selfish reason. Wouldn't it have been better if Paul had reminded them again of their completion at the day of Christ, which he reminded them of back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? We must, however, keep in mind the deeply personal connection between Paul and the Philippians. Because of his great affection and longing for them, Paul also yearns for their continued faithfulness. The apostles' joy, of course, was not tied to the Philippians. It was rooted in Christ alone. Yet, if the Philippians fell away from the faith, it would have been a grievous wound upon him, and it would have meant that his efforts toward them were in vain. He desired their continued faith as an evidence and fruit of his work. It is also worth noting that labor in vain is probably another reference to the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 23, those verses describe the new heavens and new earth in part as being where people shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. As Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, let's remember, he was in a dark place, in prison, facing possible execution from the pagan Nero. Christian preachers in Rome were slandering him out of envy and strife. Yet, Paul concludes this section of text by calling the Philippians to be glad and rejoice with him. The command to rejoice is certainly one of the primary themes of this letter, but this command 
does seem somewhat unusual at this point in his letter. He first opens then verse 17 with a conditional statement, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. A couple of thoughts can be made concerning this phrase. First, the imagery being used here is of the Levitical priest pouring out wine as a drink offering to the Lord. Thus, it's, it's not difficult to imagine the wine being symbolic of blood. Indeed, our initial thought might be that Paul is referring to the possibility of his martyrdom. Yet, that does not seem to be the case. Recall that Paul was convinced that his imprisonment would not lead to death. If we go back to Philippians chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. Second, since Paul probably isn't referring to his potential martyrdom, it is more likely that he is speaking about his suffering in general for the sake of the gospel. Further evidence of this is Paul's confidence that he would remain in the flesh for the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. And that's also back in Philippians 1.25. And that while here, his sacrificial offering of their faith would be poured out. He is therefore aiming that his manner of life, especially in the midst of his sufferings, would be a faithful example to the Philippians for the increase of their joy. Third, if this is correct, Paul is poured out through living, not dying. As fearful as the prospect of dying might be, Paul understood that ultimately dying well was easier than living well. In death, he would find rest in Christ, but in life, he would continue to be the instrument of Christ's work in others. Paul's life was one constant drink offering before the Lord. For the vast majority of Christians, we will not lose our life for the sake of Christ. Instead, the regular moments that happen daily to every Christian knock at our door. Martyrdom is not the exclusive proof of devotion to Christ, but rather each of us must take up our cross daily and actually be devoted to Jesus. Life must be an act of daily dying to self, a constant and living martyrdom. This is the life of death to which we are called. Death in life in order to find life in Christ. Finally, Paul, finally, Paul's focus shifts to the Philippians at the end of verse 17. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even in prison, suffering for the gospel, the apostle was glad and rejoiced with the Philippians upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. This seems to mean that Paul is rejoicing with them in the midst of their own suffering, which, as we should remember, is a gift of God alongside belief. 
And in verse 18, he calls them to rejoice with him in his suffering as well. Now, to be clear, this is not Paul declaring his joy simply in the fact that the Philippians were suffering. Instead, he rejoiced in what God would produce in them through suffering. And he is inviting them to be similarly excited for what God is producing in him, too. Likewise, we find joy and rejoice with others in suffering because we know that God will not fail to use it for his glory and our good. In summary, our lives shine as we put off grumbling and disputing and live in joy, especially during trials. But also, we have a message to hold forth, the word of life, which is talked about in chapter 2, there in verse 16. The gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he arose victorious over sin and death, that he offers a full pardon from the wages of sin to all who will receive it by faith. That good news is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. The gospel is not just a set of propositions or doctrines to subscribe to, although it involves certain non-negotiable doctrines. The gospel brings the very life of God to those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. We can see that back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Those apart from Christ are not just, you know, pretty good people who just need a little help to solve some of their problems. According to Scripture, they, we were, they are spiritually dead, separated from the life of God. But when we hold forth to them the word of life, God can use it to raise them from the dead to give them eternal life. Thus, our testimony is built on our life in Christ, a life free from grumbling and disputing, a life filled with the joy of Christ and the salvation he has given us even in trials. But our testimony also involves the verbal witness of telling people the word of the gospel that imparts new life to all who believe. Every Christian should have this twofold witness, a life of joy, which often opens the door to the second part, the message or word of life. Paul's witness in Philippi illustrates what he is teaching here. He had been unjustly beaten and thrown into prison and locked in the stocks. He had good cause to complain. But instead, he and Silas sang hymns of praise to God. God sent an earthquake to open the jail. The jailer was prevented from taking his own life and asked, What must I do to be saved? Paul shared the gospel message with him and his family. That's how we should bear witness of the Savior. But can we have joy when things aren't going well? How can we have God's joy in trials? 
Our testimony of Christ can reflect joy even in trials. If we live in view of Christ's coming. Paul could joyfully let his life be poured out as a drink offering because his focus was on the day of Christ when he would be rewarded because he did not run or labor in vain. If we think about it, the very words run and labor point to the difficulty of serving Jesus Christ. The imagery of being lights in the world also points to the difficulty of ministry because lights give off light by being expended themselves. The candle is burned up by giving off light. Every servant of Christ has to die to self in obedience to Christ because the day of Christ is coming when he will render his rewards to every person. And then finally, Paul says that if his life is poured out as a drink offering on the altar, if it was upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith, he rejoiced and shared that joy with them. And he urges them to rejoice in their trials and to share that joy with him. So how can we live our lives looking to the light of the day of Christ? We must daily submit ourselves in every situation to a sovereign God. Ephesians 1.11 says that he is working all things after the counsel of his will. At present, he is allowing evil to go on. Living in this evil world, we may suffer for the sake of righteousness. But what do we believe? We believe that he is sovereign, that his plan for the ages will be fulfilled, that Christ will return in power and glory to reign on his throne. So we can submit joyfully, without grumbling or disputing, to whatever he brings into our lives, knowing that he is in charge and that his plan will not be thwarted.